0: You know, we sort of got into a spontaneous series here over the last few weeks, uh, broken up by Mother's Day and a few other things. But we are approaching our ninth anniversary as as a ministry. Actually, Friday, May twentieth, will be nine years for the effect. That's if you count from the time that we actually started regular Sunday services outside of somebody's home. But if you want to go back two more years, we were what we call the Gorilla Church. We were just popping up in various houses and doing Bible studies and Sunday mornings. And the band was still playing at several churches in the area. So we did that for two years before we finally put a footprint down. And uh, we got this place in 2008 this room here, and have been kind of growing since then. But what we thought and what I thought might be, have been a good thing to do as we're approaching nine years was kind of go back over what is the, the mission and the vision and the purpose and the method of the effect. What, it is, that, what is, is it that we do here and why do we do it? And so that kind of started a string of, of several Sundays as it occurred to me that a little bit more needed to be said on the subject. But as we talked about it at the very beginning, there are four things that we primarily try to do with everyone who walks in the door. And that's the first thing, is we want to help them find acceptance. Got to find acceptance. Acceptance is the sine qua non of the spiritual journey. How many of you know what sine qua non means? Okay, your Latin not so good? All right, I understand. <clears throat> sine qua non means without which nothing. In other words, it's the essential ingredient. It's the essential piece Without acceptance, without understanding how we are loved, how we are accepted right here, right now, without anything being changed, we cannot go any further. Because if we think that there's something that we have to do in order to become loved or accepted by God or anyone else, then we're living in fear. And as long as we're living in fear, we cannot and will not take the risks, take the steps that are needed in order to actually move along this spiritual journey. Move along this hero's journey, if you will. Take this rite of passage. It's just going to be too scary. So accepting people right where they are as soon as they walk in the door with no expiration date, no time limit. You know, you are here. We love you and we'll help you if you want help. But we're not going to impose anything on you is the first step. And then from there we help people get involved and we talked about this in terms of participation getting involved in a community really throwing in starting to show up is part of that from there you build trust and from trust you finally can get to the point where you're living the effect of God's love which is lived and experienced as a transformed life and so those four things are what we are really trying to do as 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 a faith community, as a recovery ministry. And of course, this dovetails so perfectly with addicts and alcoholics with whom we work. Believe me, they come in not feeling accepted at all. And so to bring that first piece to them as we move them through is incredibly important. But we believe firmly here that everybody is recovering from something. And we just use different things to paper over those pieces of unfinished business in our life. So... That is also the way through for what we call laughingly normies in here. So, finding acceptance, getting involved, building trust, living the effect of God's love. Then, the next Sunday, I expanded on participation, on that getting involved part, because that needed to have a lot more said about it. Participation is relationship. Relationship is participation. Without participation, there is no relationship. What we do here as a group, what we do here as, as, as a collective is to build community. But not just community, accountability within the community. So that's kind of community on steroids because now you have really allowed yourself to be seen enough that someone can look into your life and help become your guardrails, help become your early warning system when you're starting to veer off the track and vice versa. So community, accountability, structure. What, what is any community? What is any group without structure? If there is no structure, you got no group. But within the group, you need to have discipline. That means you're actually showing up to what is structured. And you're showing up on a regular basis. And you're doing these things over and over again. Community, accountability, structure, discipline, and then finally service. Having an opportunity to turn back around and help others as you've been helped. As you think about it, as you move into this community or any community, you take the first few tentative steps, All right, That's showing up on Sunday mornings here, most likely as a first entree. For some people, it's a treatment center. But there is that first showing to, the Sunday experience, beginning to steep in what it is that we say here, what we do here, what we say we believe here, and trying to figure out if all those things have any integrity. you know? Starting to get the foundational concepts. First step, that is a connection with the group. The next step, for those who are willing to take it, is to start asking questions, start digging deeper, to start doing their own study, start doing their own connection, to start doing their, their um, due diligence in terms of reading, studying, but most importantly, starting to ask specific people specific questions, connecting with them. And so for just, from just a connection with the group comes a one-on-one connection either doing counseling or spiritual direction, but really connecting at that level and digging deeper. And then the third is actual personal devotions from the group to one-on-one to actual solitude. What do you do when nobody's looking? What do you do on your own time? Are you actually moving into some sort of structured prayer life, your own study, moving into silence, moving into solitude, moving into introspection? This is the path. And if you see what's happening, there are deepening steps of participation that is bringing you through to this real relationship. Not just at the group level, at the circumference, but deepening into the one on one and all the way down to the core, to the center. Remember, participation is relationship. The deepening of your participation is showing you the deepening of your relationship. This takes effort. This takes stepping out. This takes actual connection with people. And a lot of this is uncomfortable for so many of us. But this is what is encouraged here. This is what we're trying to do here. The third Sunday we took and looked at what is the effect of participation. If you actually take this journey of participation, what is the result? What's the goal? And we presented it in terms of of the awakened life. Waking up. Use the analogy of a lucid dream. A lucid dream being a dream. You wake up inside enough in the dream to know that you're dreaming, but not so much that you wake up entirely. I don't know if any of you have experienced that or at least seen the movie Inception. You know. But it's understanding that you're dreaming and then you can control the dream. You can make choices within the dream. And the analogy to waking life is that most of us are sleepwalking through life. We are prisoners, we are slaves to all the emotional triggers, all the thought processes that have been ingrained in us and they overtake us in given moments and we play them out as if they're real the same way in the dream state you play out the dream as if it's real because the dream state is just as real to the dreamer as the waking state to the waker unless you wake up. And so the process of becoming more and more aware, the process of becoming more and more participated, connected, connected, to practice presence all throughout your day is giving you awareness to actually wake up, to be able to move beyond your programming that you have done to yourself and others have done to you all your life. Move past those triggers, move past all that, and to wake up. How do you do that? In the lucid dreaming world, it's constant questioning of your, con- your state of awareness, your state of, of consciousness. Are you awake or are you dreaming? In the waking world, in the spiritual world, it's a constant practice of presence. Not just during prayer times, not just on Sundays, but all throughout the day. You're continually bringing yourself back. Every time you realize that you're back in your thought life, worrying about past, future, or abstract thoughts, if there's nothing you can do about those things right now, you cut that off. You let it go, and you come back. You use some physical anchor to bring you back to the present moment where you can connect again. So this is how we wake up. This is the process. And this is what the effect is trying to facilitate more and more beyond just the Sunday experience. There's so much more if you want to explore it. So how do you begin? How does this work? You know, there's a couple of differences between the effect and and other Christian churches, many Christian churches at least. And the differences between us and those churches will kind of illustrate how we can take this journey. The effect is not focused on intellectual understanding. It's not that we don't do any intellectual understanding. Of course we do. But that, we realize, is not the primary focus. Just the study of what's right and what's wrong, what's legal, what's illegal, is not what we're focused on. What we're focused on is an actual lived experience of God's presence in our lives. Now, it can start with an understanding. It can start even with a theological concept that allows us to believe enough intellectually to feel that it's risk-free enough to take that first step into the unknown. That's what the intellectual understanding is good for because we know that we can't figure out God. If we could figure out God, he wouldn't be God. Not to us. We'd be God if we could figure out God. That's the way that works. So why are we bothering? You know, The theology gives us the framework. It gives us the guardrails. It gives us principles through which we can move confidently to take these steps, to have this experience, to know that we know that we know in a place beneath words and thoughts, that this relationship is real. This living God is real. These moments of presence are real. And so we're not focused on the intellectual. Why? Because we view Jesus as a first century Hebrew, a first century Jew. We look at Jesus through the lens of that worldview of Judaism, we look at Jesus through the lens of the original languages that he spoke, Hebrew and Aramaic, which changes the focus of the message. When we look at Jesus from a Western view, what we typically see, and what many commentators and scholars have written about, was that Jesus was a revolutionary, Jesus was a social reformer. Have you heard these before? Yeah? Jesus was the founder of a new religion. But when you look at it, Jesus was really none of those things. Jesus didn't start a new religion. He was simply trying to fulfill the one that he was already in. And for all those people who were already there, he was trying to help them to have this experience of their father, but not through the the lens, through the barrier of the, so of the religious hierarchy, of all the purity codes and the law. He was trying to get the people to end run all that and go right to, not that he was going to disallow the law, but he was going to fulfill it in this practice of presence. He was going to fulfill it. So all his sparring with the Pharisees was trying to get that, but he wasn't trying to found a new religion. Jesus is a revolutionary. You know, Jesus pretty much—he <laughs> pretty much dismayed and infuriated everybody who was near because he never met any of their expectations. If they wanted him to be the revolutionary, the one that was going to spark the revolt against Rome, he constantly threw off that mantle of power. Hey, do we need to pay taxes to Caesar? You know, and he had that answer that completely just ran all of that. He never would go there. Some uh, commentators believe that Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus as he did, trying to push Jesus into a revolutionary corner, trying to push him into the corner where he would have to fight because he so believed that Jesus was a social revolutionary. But he really wasn't. And a social reformer? Jesus treated everybody exactly the same. When we really look at what Jesus' identity was, what he said was, Who are you? I and the Father are one, is what he said. Or he said, I'm the Son of God, which means exactly the same thing in that culture, in that worldview, that he and the Father are one. When he and the Father are one, then he and everything the Father has created are one and the same. When Jesus looked at a woman, he didn't see an inferior part of society. When he looked at a child, he didn't see property. His culture did, but he just saw a person. And it wasn't just a woman that he would go talk to. He broke those cultural barriers because Jewish men would not speak to a woman in public. Jesus did. And not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman. And not just a man, but a Samaritan man. A Roman centurion, the big monster in their lives the ones that stood outside the law, the ones that were sinning so grievously that nobody would touch them, they would cross the street to avoid even their clothes brushing against them for fear of being made unclean themselves. Jesus wasn't trying to reform society. Jesus was just loving everyone absolutely equally, accepting everyone absolutely equally. And that was revolutionary. Yes, But Jesus was like an accidental reformer. (laughs) He was an accidental revolutionary. He was an accidental radical, if you will. Because what was driving him was this sense of oneness, this complete connection with everyone and everything. And because of that, he did things that nobody else could do, would do, because it felt outside of their understanding of what was right and what was wrong and what was legal and what was illegal. Jesus became an accidental radical because on purpose what he was doing was being a contemplative. And we throw that word around here a lot and and it's hard to know what it means. But we're going to talk about that. What is this contemplative? What is this oneness? What is this pure presence that Jesus was practicing? And so we here at the effect are trying to be contemplatives as well. Jesus accepted everyone no matter who they were, would sit at table with them and eat with them, which in that culture is the same as having a contract or a treaty with them, a compact with them. And so we do the same here. The next step was Jesus called them into participation, right? Come follow me. Hey, Levi, come follow me. He's sitting at his tax booth. He's the scum of the earth as far as the Jews are concerned. Hey, Levi, come follow me. And by the way, I'm going to have dinner at your house tonight. Think that raised a few eyebrows? You know? This was Jesus. We try to do the same thing here. We try to be contemplatives here. Now, you're not going to see so much of that contemplative attitude here on Sundays because it's a corporate gathering. We're doing this all together. You're going to hear that leaning in the prayers that we pray during worship and, of course, at times like this when I'm going off on it. But where you're really going to start to get that is when you move in as we are calling each one of you to go into this deeper relationship, to move from the group to the one-on-one and then into your own personal study, your own personal devotions, that call to be contemplative is going to be louder and louder. Okay, what is contem- contemplation? I want to read just a paragraph um, from a, uh, the writing of Richard Rohr that maybe can help us to get a little bit clearer on what we're talking about. He says, The word contemplation has ancient roots, but for a long time, it was not taught much in the Western Church. And when he says a long time, he means a really long time. We're talking at least from the Reformation on. So for the last 500 years, when the Protestants split from Rome, especially in our tradition, and the United States is heir to, to European Protestantism more than Catholicism, there's been this bent on the intellectual understanding, trying to understand the scriptures just right because the cry of the Reformers was that Scripture alone saves. They were trying to get away from the traditions and the dogma of the Roman Church, which used their traditions and dogma to really put the people down. Understandable. But they sort of threw the baby out with the bathwater. They pulled the pendulum too far to the other side. And so they lost that contemplative thread. They lost that mystical thread. And the Catholic Church has retained that in part, but it doesn't always trickle down to the parish level if you just go into the parish churches. And so, it was not taught much in the Western Church until the 1950s and 60s with Thomas Merton. If you know anything about Thomas Merton, he was the one who started talking about contemplation again, about silence and solitude again, about this lost thread in the Christian tradition in a way that reached the, the, the masses after World War II. He was the right person with the right words at the right time to hit all these returning GIs who had lost their sense of identity after the war, and he, it exploded. And so here comes this sense of spirituality again. Simply put, contemplation is entering a deeper silence and letting go of our habitual thoughts sensations, and feelings. It's a letting go. If you want a more egg-headed version, and you know me. Contemplation is having a content-free mind. Content-free mind. Stepping away from all your thoughts, emotions, all the stuff that clutters in there, and directing it toward God as a living reality. A content-free mind directed toward God as a living reality. Or if this one works better, a deeper silence, a letting go of our habitual thoughts, sensations, and feelings, cultivating that. Okay. Many religions use the word meditation. Christian often, Christians often use the word prayer. But for many in the West, prayer has come to mean something functional, something you do to achieve a desired effect, which puts you back in charge. Okay? See, the first step of AA is admitting you're powerless. What we do in our form of Christian prayer, especially prayers of supplication or petition, is to take the power back. And in contemplation, you're you're constantly giving the power away. You're recognizing your powerlessness. You're recognizing the power of the one greater than yourself. You're hitching your wagon to that, but you're trying to do that without any of your own volition. Prayers of petition aren't all bad. But they don't really need lead to a new state of being or consciousness. The same old consciousness is self-centered. How can I get God to do what I want God to do? This kind of prayer allows you to remain an untransformed, egocentric person who is just trying to manipulate God. That's one reason why religion is in such desperate straits today. It isn't really transforming people. It's merely giving people some pious and religious ways to again be in charge and in control. Albert Einstein said that you can't solve a problem with the same consciousness that created it. Get what he's saying there? We have said it here over and over again that the means we use must match the ends we seek. Same thing. If the problem, what is blocking us from this experience, this living experience of God, is the fact that we're in control and we're thinking about it all the time and trying to live life like a chess game, thinking three steps ahead all the time, then a prayer life that reinforces that isn't going to get us any closer. In fact, it's going to regress us. This is what he's trying to talk about. This is what he's trying to say. This is why contemplation is so fundamental. It's fundamental in recovery and it's fundamental in spiritual recovery because that's what we're all trying to do. Now, I suppose the question in everybody's mind was, did Jesus do this? Because he's our, he's our model. He's our way shore. He's our, our guide in all of this. He's our Lord. Look at Mark 1, 9. It's in your bulletins, and printed will be put in on the screens. We did get our computers back, didn't we? Or did we? We did. Hey, good job. Mark 1, 9, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. That word impelled there is really interesting. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a forceful word. It's, a, it's an even violent word in both the Greek and the Aramaic. Ekbalo. It's, it's this, this, this pushing this, this, you know, it's just really forceful. It's not just a gentle leading. You hear that in Luke and in Matthew, he was led about, or he was led. But Mark hits it on the nose. He was impelled. He was forced. He was driven out. Doesn't it always seem to go that way? You have this great moment. You are my beloved son. Who am well pleased. And now you're driven out into the wilderness. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but it always seems to go. You know, one after the other. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Okay, this is Mark's version. Very spare. Mark doesn't give us any detail. You can go to Matthew and you can go to Luke to get the detail that he was in this wilderness situation. He was pushed to the point of exhaustion, pushed to the point of starvation. And if you think it was 40 days and 40 nights, that's a symbolic number. There are 18 unaccounted for years in Jesus' life. This was a long time that he spent, somewhere between age 12 and age 30, out in this place of silence and solitude in a fierce landscape, you know, in a desert environment, both internally, metaphorically, and possibly externally as well where he was purging himself of all of this stuff that we're talking about. Well, this is Jesus. Did he have to do that? Yeah. This is what they're describing here. Luke 2 tells us he had to grow in wisdom and stature. He had to learn like everybody else. This is what he was doing. The three symbolic temptations, three is another symbolic number, the number of a completion, the number of perfection. You know, to stern, turn the loaves into, turn the stones into loaves would be a better thing to do, wouldn't it? especially if you're hungry. Henry Nouwen has a beautiful way of looking at this. He says that's our need to be relevant, a human need to be relevant. To bow down before me and have control of all the kingdoms of the earth, that's our need to be powerful, to be in control. We've talked about that one. And to throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple, which would have put him right into the court of the Gentiles where everybody could see and yet be borne up by angels. That's our need to be spectacular. Think about it. The need to be relevant, the need to be powerful, the need to be spectacular is sort of the sum total of all the human compulsions and drives that our fear is heir to. That's what Jesus, and when he was done, when he had successfully worked through every one of those things, now he comes back into community. Now he comes back to teach and begin his public ministry All of the great contemplatives would say, now he had something to say. Because if we move in the other direction, if we just choose a mission and choose a vision and we go out to execute that, the harm that we do is incalculable to the people that we meet. But if all of this activity and this teaching flows out of who we are because we've now become first one with the Father and we choose what he chooses... We love and take pleasure in what he loves and takes pleasure in. Everything that we choose is one with that. I don't know how much purer you can say, as in heaven, so on earth your will be done, as Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer. So he's purging himself. He's moving through all these things. But not just once. You don't just do this once. Every day we need to do this. In case you haven't noticed, spiritual connection doesn't keep... You can't put it in a jar, preserve it, put it on the shelf. Every day you need to plug back in. Take a look at Luke 5. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. I love that, to lonely places. Now another translation might say a desolate place of the wilderness, but I like this. He went to a lonely place. He went to a place apart. He went and found his solitude and his silence. In order for him to pray, Matthew 14, after he had sent them away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. Mark 135, early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and slipped out. Did you love that? Everybody's sleeping in the room. Jesus slips out before dark to a solitary place to pray. Luke 6, in those days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. He spent the night in prayer to God. This is a regular thing. This is his structure and his discipline. Alternating with community and accountability back and forth, one reinforcing the other, keeping the connection, the oneness with his father completely intact so that when he went back into community, into the fray, into the noise and the details and all the craziness, that purpose was still moving through him. The spirit was moving through him. That's Jesus' pattern. It's what he's doing. And so I suppose we could ask, what kind of prayer is he praying? What does he do all night long while he's praying? There's clues. We can't know for sure, but there are clues. And first of all, if he's going to silence and solitude, that tells you something about the prayer. Is it a constant stream of words? You know, I would say no. I can't say with any authority. But look at the pattern he gives us in the Lord's Prayer when his followers ask him how to pray. And he says, look, pray this way. And that wasn't a prayer that was meant to be recited verbatim, although we do, and it can be a great reminder, but it's really a five-step way of living. It's clearing a space, creating an internal silence and solitude that can allow something to happen. It's trying to match our will with God's will, and we can't know what his will is until we've cleared that space and created some silence and some solitude. It's staying in the moment Give us the bread of our need this day, staying this day, this moment. Forgiving our trespassers as they forgive, as we forgive us. You know what I'm trying to say here. Getting balance again. Whether it's imbalance, whether it's a debt or a sin or a trespass, it takes relationship out of balance. Bring them back into balance. For those of you 12-steppers, starting to sound familiar? You know? What's your fourth through seventh steps? What's your eighth and ninth step? What's out of balance comes back into balance. And finally, not to be diverted. This is a way of living life. You know, lead us not into temptation. This idea of not being diverted from purpose, coming back again. It's this type of contemplative life that Jesus is showing us with this prayer. But he puts it even more on the nose in that great prayer at John 17. The last prayer he prays before he goes to the cross. And just to take a look at a few lines, John 17 at verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, okay, not just those that he is currently physically in contact with, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Hey, guess what? That's all of us, right? That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you have loved me. This deep unity, this deep connection, is not just life at the surface of things, at the circumference of things. This is moving through that deepening steps, those deepening steps of participation we were talking about, moving into the core, moving into this deep connection, this deep unity. For a moment, just think of the moments of unity that you've had. Think of those peak moments that were so connected that still you can call up a memory and it's just about as vivid as it happened yesterday. Maybe it was when they laid that baby on your chest, you ladies, when you gave birth. Maybe it was a kiss. Maybe it was just watching a sunset. Those moments of extreme connection and unity. What you experienced there, if you really analyze it, that what was going through your mind was nothing. The moment itself was so intense that it blew out all of the normal thought processes, blew out all of the emotional content, all of the programming for the past, and you were just there and you were just in that moment. This is what Jesus is trying to get across for us to us, that we can have those moments of unity, if we engage in this contemplative life, if we engage in this prayer life understood this way, it's so important that we understand what He's talking about when he talks about prayer. How does this work? It's the substance of a quiet mind, perfect presence, this connection, this contemplative moment. And so here, when we're trying to talk about this, it's, it's almost like an oxymoron, you know, corporate contemplation. <laughs> it's almost like you're, you're fighting yourself. Just by the fact that I'm sitting here talking to you about this, putting this in words, is taking us further away. But again, if we can get the concept and you can understand what's going on, then you can take it into the streets of your lives. You can start to actually work this thing. You're not going to see it so much here on Sundays, even though we talk about it. But if you move deeper in with us, if you come and ask questions of me, Scott, Frank, Marion, and you ask about, how does this work? Can we sit down and have coffee? Can we talk? Can we look, What does this look like? And you start moving from the group experience to the one-on-one experience and then to the solitary experience you will see what is actually going on in your own life as you start to experience these moments and realize that these moments can be had any moment that we can clear the decks and come in for a landing we teach meditation here especially to our clients we teach centering prayer here and this is not without controversy There are a lot of, of, especially conservative churches, that feel this is opening yourself up to the devil or is somehow an occult practice. Nothing could be further from the truth. Meditation, centering prayer, prayer beads, worship music, all of these things that we do to clear our minds. You know, what's the music for? It's the same thing, clear your mind. Don't listen to the songs as songs. Don't just hear the words, but let the music fill that space. Let the music take your thinking brain off for a ride so that you can just be here now. All the same, but they're just physical techniques. They're things that we can do to get the experience of what it's like when our ego, when that false self, when that separate self, however you want to to label it, is out of the way. It gets out of the way. I have a, a fellow pastor here down in San Clemente who is having yoga classes at his church. Same thing with yoga you know, moving into that, those body positions. And he's getting all sorts of flack from the churches around him. They think that he is bringing the devil incarnate into his church. It has nothing to do with being Hindu. It has nothing to do with, with anything occult. It has to do with doing... You know, some of my best prayer times are when I was running. You know, I'd get up early in the morning and I would run. And I could almost feel myself floating above myself as I was running. And those were some of the purest, most beautiful prayer times. Yeah. You know, so is running now of the devil too? We we have to think about this and, and not be afraid of things that can really help us. We don't do yoga here, I just want you to know that. <laughs> but we could. It could happen. That's a superstitious attitude, as if, you know, body posture can somehow create a result that is disconnected. We wanna we wanna get free of all that stuff and use the tools that God has given us to be able to find him again. Contemplation is difficult because it requires a tearing down of the ego self and the, our belief system. You actually have to let the old man die, like Paul said. And that death does not go easy. We really do die hard to our egoic self, to our false self. The old man wants to keep living. And so we have to tear it down instead of build it up. I've got another um, little bit longer passage from Rohr that I want to read and see if I can get this across to you, how religion can work at two different levels to help us through this process. He writes, Mature religion teaches contemplation as a path to true transformation. See, that's what we're after. We're after the transformed life. Paul, be ye transformed, right? But if we're practicing the same old thing the same old way, then there's going to be no transformation. We're just reinforcing old habits and old patterns. So mature religion teaches contemplation As a path to true transformation. But before we are ready to be shaken and changed at our roots, we need religion at its lower levels to help us develop a healthy ego. Ken Weber describes religion's differing roles along the spiritual and developmental journey. Religion itself has always performed two very important but very different functions. One, it acts as a way of creating meaning for the separate self, the ego. Okay, that's bolstering the ego. We need a healthy ego before we can let go of it. So, at that level, religion is helping give meaning to the separate self, the ego. It offers stories and narratives and rituals and revivals that, taken together, help the separate self make sense of and endure the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Okay, that's Hamlet, in case you're wondering. But the stuff that happens when you get mugged by life, how are you going to deal with that? Religion helps you by giving you this system, this belief system, this practice, this body of practice. This is good and needed. That's how you get started. As psychology would say, you have to have an ego to let go of an ego. You have to have a self to move beyond the self. But most religion stops at this first function, simply giving you a positive self, image, and identity. That I'm religious. Okay, That's positive. I'm moral, dedicated, or whatever my sense of worth and belonging might be. Wilbur continues, this function of religion does not usually or necessarily change the level of consciousness in a person. It does not deliver radical transformation, nor does it deliver a shattering liberation from the separate self altogether. Rather, it consoles the self, fortifies the self, defends the self, promotes the self. And as long as the separate self believes the creeds, performs the rituals, mouths the prayers, or embraces the dogma, then the self, it is fervently believed, will be saved, quote-unquote, either now in the glory of being God-saved or favored in an afterlife that ensures eternal wonderment. Okay? We're never totally sure what saved means or was supposed to mean, but I suppose in most Western Christians' minds, it means going to heaven, that I'm going to get some reward later for behaving or believing in a certain way. It seems hard to believe this could be the great God's simplistic agenda, but you believe it because everybody else does. You figure this many people can't be wrong. They must be right that life is a giant reward-punishment system, and if you jump through the right hoops properly, you'll get the reward. It's not really about becoming a new creation that Paul talked about in Galatians. You don't have to be transformed. You just have to play the game right. This is the first half of the life of religion. It deals with the small self, the false self, and it's all about requirements. And there may be some hyperbole there, obviously, but you kind of get the gist of where he's going. Wilbur then goes on to explain the second function of religion. Two, religion has also served in a usually very, very small minority. Remember when Jesus talked about the narrow gate and the wide gate, the narrow path and the wide path? The path that leads to life is narrow and the gate is constricted and the path that leads to destruction is broad and many go by it. He wasn't talking about God restricting the flow of people to heaven. He was talking about this very phenomenon. There's always a few people that are going to drill down and use what religion has to offer, what church has to offer to take themselves into these deeper places. In a very small minority, the function of radical transformation and liberation. This function does not fortify the separate self, but actually and utterly shatters it. Not consolation, but devastation. Not entrenchment, but emptiness. Not complacency, but explosion. Not comfort, but revolution. In short, not a conventional bolstering of consciousness, but a radical transmutation and transformation at the deepest seat of consciousness itself. A lot of fancy words there. But what he's talking about is that death to the old man that Paul talks about. Before you can have the infilling the ability to have the experience of that unity, that connection. you know, Charismatics do the same thing, don't they? What is speaking in tongues all about? The mind gets out of the way. The tongue is engaged. The spirit just prays through. It's that sense of being part of the flow. Slain in the spirit, all these other things that happen in the charismatic is the same idea here. Can we get out of the way? Can we get out of control so that something can take place in our lives? This is true religious conversion. This is second half of life religion, though it can happen at any age. The experience occurs when God or life destabilizes your private ego, usually through some form of suffering. It will feel like dying because it is the death of the false self. The small, separate self is shattered and your true self is revealed. The true self is all about right relationship, not requirements. Relationship, not requirements relationship. It's not about being correct. It's about being connected, which you always were. You just didn't realize it. This is the self that is capable of contemplation because it no longer reads reality from an egocentric position. Contemplation is indeed radical. Accidentally radical, but radical because it's a way of being in the world, walking in the world, and seeing the world that is absolutely different than the daily grind of ideas and contests. So like Jesus, if we can start within, move this thing from the inside out, rather from the outside in, with rules and regulations and laws and rituals and practices. We can do all those things, but when they're flowing from the inside out, they're beautiful and liberating rather than restricting and limiting. Start within. Find the oneness with Father, with everyone else, by letting go of these thoughts and emotions by the need for being relevant and powerful and spectacular, to become these radical reformers accidentally. And if you can do this, if you can find this connection, if you can find this identification that Jesus is talking about, you're going to end up in places you never expected. Maybe even a strip club. And I know that needs explanation, so let me get to it right away before you get the wrong idea. It's funny. Um, Pat and Shirley's daughter, Cherry, sent me and Marion a post from a woman's blog. And it was just so perfect. Sometimes these things just drop into your lap like a gift. And it's like, I know where that goes. It goes right here. So I can shock everybody with strip club. It's titled, I went to a strip club. All right? Here we go. A while back, I was asked by a group of pastor's wives to go with them to strip clubs. That sentence alone sounds strange, yeah? But hang with me. At first I was a little hesitant, and not for reasons you might think. I love people, especially ones who are broken. It's part of my calling. But given what I've walked through, I know how fragile broken people can be, and I know how insensitive the church can be, and I was uneasy. But these weren't just any pastor's wives. They had a vision, one that longed to love on women that society had thrown aside. It reminded me a lot of Jesus, so I jumped on it. Their plan was to visit these clubs once a month to deliver a meal and gift baskets. I joined them the first night, and I'll be honest, I had no idea what to expect. Now, I had my fair share of time back in the day in bars and such, but I'd never been to a strip club. I was totally unaware of what I was walking into. We arrived, and the bouncer ushered us back into the dressing rooms where we were introduced ourselves and began distributing the gifts and the food. I was shocked by what I saw. I'll tell you why. I was raised to believe that no good comes from places like that, which is probably true on many levels. I wouldn't suggest making it your go-to for date nights, but I was filled as, many Christian, as were many Christian kids with fear about, quote-unquote, places like that, that those people were heathens and doing all kinds of sinful, shameful things, which, again, is true of strip clubs and bars and many other places, even churches. But these girls, these lovely girls, were so normal. As I talked with one in particular, she reminded me of any young mom I would talked to in the school pickup line, minus the fact that she didn't have much clothing on. I tried not to focus on that. They showed pictures of their children, talked of pregnancy. I was pregnant at the time, chatted about trying to get back in shape after having a baby, etc. It was so normal. But as we talked and I looked into their eyes, I saw women, young, broken women, who had stories, probably much like mine or yours. We didn't stay long, they had a shift to work, and we didn't want to overstay our welcome. But as we left, they thanked us, more than once. As I drove home, I totally fell apart in my car. Not because I felt sorry for them, not because I thought I was so much better than they were, not because I pitied their circumstance. I wept before God, asking for His forgiveness in the way I had viewed women in that profession. Because that could have been me. It could have been any of us. Had my journey taken a different turn, I could well have been on the receiving end of that encounter. I had my baby shortly after that visit and didn't get to go back for the monthly visits to see the women. But I stayed in contact with one of the women organizing it. And every so often... I asked her how it's going. She said, the women are starting to reach out more. You know what one of them said to me last time? She said that she was so glad we come to visit them because we're not like all the other churches. Apparently, other churches send them hate mail all the time. Complete shock and disbelief gripped me. People, church, what are we doing? Did we forget or do we just sing it in songs that Jesus was a friend of sinners? Did we forget that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance? What I am saying to you is that if Jesus were here walking among us, wouldn't, he, wouldn't it be just like him to walk into the most unChrist-like place, strip club or whatever, and completely freak the religious folk out? <laughs> wow! Now, this woman was amazed that the churches reacted that way, but to me, it's completely understandable. It's not surprising at all. Churches at that first level that are still reinforcing the small ego, the separate self, with the idea of morals, with the idea of rituals and practices, with legal attitudes are going to react that way, of course. They're going to be threatened by anyone that comes from outside that understanding, outside those walls that they have set up for themselves. That's what's going on. That's why we need to transcend that. Otherwise, we will be judging. Jesus said, don't judge. The judging is what separates us one from another. Reinforcing that small self, that, that separate ego, is something that we need to work against by moving into the contemplative sphere and letting go of all that. Not that we let go of our morals and beliefs, but we never let our morals and beliefs, our sense of, of position, get in the way of relationship with whomever we happen to be in front of at the time. And it will lead us in places we never expected. I never expected to be working in addiction and recovery in a million years. But I recognized it when I saw it, that that was my place. Thank God it wasn't a strip club. This is what Jesus is constantly fighting against. In the New Testament, you see him over and over again fighting against the legalism, fighting against this belief that rigid rituals and practices are what save us in some way in God's sight. But the church at the second level, this contemplative level, is breaking all this down, opening us up to the possibility of this unity with everyone, even strippers. Now the pastor's wives here, you got to applaud them, but they didn't set out to be radical reformers, to be revolutionaries, to be controversial in their church. They only set out to love other women. They actually saw these women as just other women and went out to connect with them, And when you're ready to take deeper steps, I hope that you will step out either in this direction or whatever direction you need to to get clear of all the stuff that is keeping you separate and fearful in your life to move out and connect so that you can become an accidental radical too. Let's pray. Father, we're just grateful to be sitting here to be able to talk about the things we talk about, to push ourselves, push ourselves into just uncomfortable enough positions that we know that we're someplace different. We can analyze our discomfort and our distress, see where it's coming from, and decide which direction to move, but in a choice that is really based here and now with you at the core. Father, we're so aware of how you love us. We're so aware of the shape of this journey that you've shown us in your son, in the people around us. Help us to take that journey. Help us not to be afraid to go ahead and let the old man and the old woman die. To let go of the things that we cling to and think that are life so that we can find your life beyond. Thank you for always being there for us, Lord. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. Never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand.